Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined for a second time by Dr. Russell Warren. He's Associate Professor of Psychology at Utah Valley University. And today we're going to focus on his new book, In the Know, Debunking 35 Myths About Human Intelligence. And Dr. Warren, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You're welcome, Ricardo. It's always great to talk to you, too. Okay, great. So today we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of intelligence research, IQ, and so on. So my first question will be, because I guess that this is something important for us to tackle, in intelligence research, there's this concept of G, and then we have IQ. So what are the differences between G and IQ, and what is the relationship between them? That's a great question to start off with. Um, G is this shared general ability that, that is shared across all tasks. Mm -hmm. No matter what sort of cognitive task you give someone, whether it tests verbal ability, short-term memory, etc., um, there's this global ability that some people call intelligence that is used in conjunction with other abilities to, to solve that task. And so G is what humans use no matter what they're doing to solve problems cognitively. So it's a very general ability. It's used across every task that psychologists have ever been able to devise that's cognitive in some sort. And um, because it's so broad and people who do well on one task tend to do well on others, a lot of people, including me, say that G is basically more or less what we call intelligence in, in Western cultures. IQ is the number, it's the measurement of intelligence or G. It's not the same thing as G, it's a measure. And so it's like saying how if you step on your scale, your weight is, is a number, mm -hmm. you know, the number of kilograms, the number of pounds you weigh. That, that's your weight, it's a number, but it's a measurement of your mass. Yeah. So in most circumstances, it doesn't matter a whole lot whether you're talking about G or whether you're talking about IQ, but there are a couple places in the book where I say, we're talking about the number here, but over here we're talking about the thing it measures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. You mentioned a thing there that I would like to focus on now. I mean, I had this question for later, but since you touched on it, you mentioned that intelligence, uh, I mean, th that uh, IQ measures intelligence as we understand it in the West. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that... Uh, IQ tests only work for Western people or that other cultures might have some different uh, concepts of intelligence? That's, that's another great question. The word intelligence and, and you as someone who's bilingual and I'm bilingual too, uh, the word intelligence does not always directly translate across languages and it's not yeah. realistic to expect the word to mean the same thing in different languages 
or for it to refer to the same collection of tasks that someone can successfully do or the same um, collection of abilities. It's not realistic to expect that to be same, the same across cultures. And so whether what my culture calls intelligence and your culture and someone in East Asia, to me, it's not very relevant. And this is the power of G because G is that shared functionality, that shared variance, we call it in statistics across all cognitive tasks. And because it functions in all cognitive tasks, G is a culturally neutral concept. Yes, it seems to align with what Westerners call intelligence, mm -hmm. but it didn't have to. Yeah. And so um, I've, I've done research with my former student, Cassidy Burningham, where we found data from over 90 non-Western developing nations, the sort of places where we would expect G or intelligence to look very different or to not show up at all. Yeah. Uh, at least intelligence in a Western sense. And we found that in almost every data set, we did get this general ability that we found. And so that tells me that you could design a test for most, perhaps all human cultures. Mm -hmm. That does not mean that we can just use an American test and stroll into some country in some part of the world and give them the test without adaptations. Sure. So all human cultures or, or almost all, but likely all based on my data, um, probably have a general ability that you use to solve problems. Mm -hmm. What's culturally specific and what testers have to adjust for are the manifestations of that ability. And so in the United States, I can ask people about questions about culturally relevant material, about the government, pop culture, history. But I might need a very different set of tasks if I visit East Africa and try to give a test. Mm -hmm. And so the ability seems to be there it's the manifestations of the ability that seem to vary across cultures. And we do have to take those into consideration. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you adapt the test to a different culture, uh, you change the tasks that people have to perform. Yes. There's some, uh, in similar cultures, it's very easy to adapt a test for. I think of Canada and the United States. <laughs> <laughs> there's not a world of difference here um yeah. but the more different two cultures are the more care you're going to have to take in adapting the test but there are some human universals and um, we can use those to create tests especially for children mm -hmm. every culture in the world understands that the sun is out in the day and the moon comes out sometimes at night we, we can talk about that Mm -hmm. um, pretty much every culture understands that water flows downhill, that up and down are opposites. And so we can use cultural universals like that to create tests, especially for children. Mm -hmm. But the more culturally universal you try to make a test, the fewer items you can put on it because mm -hmm. the harder it is to find 
items that work across many, many, many cultures. Right. And those items that tend to go associated with cultural or human universals, do they correspond to the parts of an IQ test that have higher G loadings? Some do. Um, it, it, it very greatly depends. Like I said, this is easier for children because okay. um, what you refer to as a G loading is a measure of how well an item measures intelligence. Yeah. Highly G loaded items tend to be more complex and ideas like opposites of, of up and down day and night. Those are more complex for young children than they are for adults. And so it depends very much on the sort of item you're asking, the culture you're asking in, the age of, of the examinees, etc. Mm -hmm. By the way, I've asked you about G, but there's another question that I left out. Do we know what G really is? Yes <laughs> and no. Yeah. G is, if you want to get extremely technical, it's defined statistically. Mm -hmm. You throw all your tasks and scores into a statistical method called factor analysis, and it spits out this this G saying, hey, look, your items all form this, this general factor of shared variance, blah, blah, blah. So in the one sense, yeah, we know exactly what it is. It's, it's a statistical abstract um, concept that's derived mathematically. <laughs> the question is, okay, what is that in the human mind? <laughs> yeah. And that's a harder question. There was some optimism when technology like PET scans and functional MRIs were developed, where people thought, oh, we'll give intelligence tests and one part of the brain will activate and, and that will tell us where G is in the brain. And it hasn't worked out that way. G seems to be an emergent property of the biology of the brain and what it does. Mm -hmm. Um, and neuropsychologists are making progress on it, but there's a lot of unanswered questions about how we go from billions of neurons um, you know, connected with axons and synapses, um, different brain regions and consciousness. We're still a long ways from understanding how we go from those ingredients mm -hmm. to a global problem solving ability. Mm -hmm. But there are some differences at the level of the brain that people have already identified between, for example, people, people that have low IQ and others that have high IQ, correct? Yes. The, the one there's the most data about is brain size. Mm -hmm. And speculation about that goes back, gosh, almost 150 years to Sir Francis Galton. Yeah. Um, and it is true that larger brains tend to belong to people with higher IQ scores. That being said, it's a somewhat modest correlation. It's not extremely strong. And there's problems with generalizing that um, across human groups, especially sex groups. And so size, even though we have the most data about, it's not the most insightful thing, but there's a positive correlation there. 
I'm really excited for, about my work from um, colleagues like like Rex Jung and um, and Erhan Gent, who um, have identified cellular and regional differences in the brain between people of higher and low IQ. Um, Aaron, for example, has an amazing article. It's, it's one of the most important articles, I think, published in intelligence research in the past 20 years, yeah. where uh, he shows that at the cellular level, higher IQ people have more organized dendrites and axons. In other words, mm -hmm. the of a, of a nerve cell that branch off are more yeah. organized, they're less chaotic. And, um, and I believe that at the cellular level um, is where a lot of these differences are. Mm -hmm. But again, this is, it's, it's in its early stages, um, but I am impressed and excited about the, the progress that my neuropsychologist colleagues are making. Yeah. What about the PFIT model of intelligence by Richard Heyer and others? What do you think about it? Uh, the parietal frontal integration theory, PFIT. Yeah. It's a theory to try to explain the results that we do see in um, fMRI and, and other uh, brain um, studies. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a model saying that the emergence of G, the emergence of intelligence, is, uh, it occurs when different regions of the brain they tend to be in the parietal lobe at the top and the frontal lobe at the front. Yeah. Generally, not all of them, but generally they are there. And it's a, um, the idea is that high intelligence comes from several regions of the brain scattered throughout, uh, how well they function and how well they can communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. And it's the first good theory about how we go from the biology of the brain to some people being able to solve problems better than others. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this intelligence differences thing. And it's, I, I think it's the best model and the best theory we have out there. But Rich Heyer himself told me once that it's a work in progress. He expects mm -hmm. improvements and it may be wrong completely. We don't know yet. This is the exciting thing about science. Our theories might be wrong and we'll learn more later. But for the time being, it seems to be the best model. I do talk about it in my book in a chapter on the biology of intelligence. And I can't find a better model now, but I have colleagues who are dissatisfied with some or all of it. Mm -hmm. And they're working to improve it. And to the credit of the PFIT model's creators, they're, they're open to improvement um everyone's excited about about understanding the brain and and the neuroscience of intelligence better mm -hmm. great so uh, since we're talking about the neuroscience of general intelligence since it has general in the word let's say or the phrase um there's another question here that i think is important to tackle that is do we know if intelligence general intelligence in this case is domain is domain specific or domain general in terms of the problems that it evolved to solve and uh, would that correspond to some module in the mind or not uh, that's that's another complex question 
everyone agrees that there is more than one cognitive ability. Intelligence mm -hmm. is not the only thing that matters. It's not the only ability in the, in the mind that can help us solve cognitive problems. Mm -hmm. And everyone agrees that other abilities like processing speed, working memory, verbal ability, spatial reasoning, these, these other abilities there in the mind, but they're related to general intelligence. Although we disagree about how and some of the details, but pretty much everyone who's mainstream agrees that these abilities are related. Mm -hmm. um, and so on the way intelligence differs from all those others is that yes, it is general. Yeah. It seems that G or, or general intelligence, if you, if you say they're equivalent, like I do, um, it seems that this ability is used whenever humans have to solve a cognitive problem or to do a cognitive task. And it seems to work in every context, some contexts more than others. Mm. And so, um, yes, it is very domain general. And those other broad abilities, they're more specific, but they, are, they can also function in more than one context. A, a good example is language. We use language in reading, we use language in communication, thinking very frequently. Most people think in verbal terms. Uh, we can talk out a problem or, or memorize a list of instructions to help us solve, solve a problem. So we can use verbal abilities in a lot of things, but there's also other tasks that we don't use verbal abilities on. <laughs> Whereas we'll use G for all tasks and People have been looking for over a hundred years for a cognitive task that doesn't use D or, or general intelligence and no one's ever been able to find one. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that, that to me is pretty strong evidence that, yeah, it is general. If, if five, six generations of psychologists can't find a task that's definitely cognitive, but doesn't use G, well, there probably isn't one. Yeah. And do we know anything about the evolution of general intelligence? I mean, because we know basically the types of tasks that we are able to solve with these cognitive ability, let's say, but, but are there perhaps certain specific evolutionary functions that would explain the evolution of general intelligence? Uh, this is a, a very exciting frontier, I think. The, there have been some breakthroughs recently. One of the ones that excites me the most is that uh, some of my colleagues who study animals and who are evolutionary psychologists, uh, they keep finding a general problem-solving ability in other mammal species. Mm -hmm. And I'm not an expert in animal psychology, but I do like keeping my eye out on this literature and they have found G in non-human primates, dogs, cats, rats, uh, all, all sorts of, of mammals. And that to me is a strong indicator that a general problem solving ability seems to be in common among mammals. And 
the most likely explanation is that it evolved very early in mammal evolutionary history. That to me is much more plausible than the idea that it evolved independently in dogs and in mice and in all these other species who exist in very different evolutionary niches. And it seems to me more likely that G would have evolved very early. Um, and so that's something very exciting for me. And we're getting better at trying to figure out what environmental or cultural circumstances might select for intelligence. The difficulty is that we don't have a time machine to be able to go back and observe our, our hominid ancestors. And I suspect that a lot of the environmental circumstances that might make a species smarter or develop a better G ability don't leave a trace in the archaeological record. But breakthroughs are happening. Um, and I'm very encouraged that we are finding G in other animals and that um, that might lead to theories of of where this came from in mammals and why some mammals are smarter than others, even within the same species. Um, you know, why is it that a, a German shepherd or, or a, a border collie is such a smart dog? Um, and the dogs I had growing up as a child, poodles, were, were as dumb as, as all get out. One of our poodles couldn't figure out what to even do to reproduce. I mean, why is it that the same species can have such vast differences in ability? And the advantage with dogs is that we do know a lot about their environments. They're our pets. They live with us. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm hopeful that that can give us hints about our evolutionary history. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what about different theories of uh, different intelligences that are out there. For example, Gardner's multiple intelligences, Sternberg's practical intelligence, Goldman's emotional intelligence. Is there any solid evidence that any of those theories and intelligences really exist? Some more than others. Okay. Um, let me start with what I'm most skeptical of, and then we'll, we'll move on to the ones sure. I, I'm more, more open about. Uh, let's start with Gardner. Mm -hmm. uh, just like me, he's an educational psychologist. This is my world and the one I'm most <laughs> familiar with. Gardner's theory is that, depending on which version you subscribe to, there's between seven and nine independent intelligences. They don't cooperate, they don't communicate, and high ability on one is either mostly or entirely independent from your ability level on another. And um, there's a musical intelligence, there's a, a logical mathematical intelligence, there's a body kinesthetic intelligence, there's a verbal intelligence, etc. And Gardner, um, to put it politely, has not been eager 
to to test his theory. He gathered data to create it, but then he hasn't been very forthcoming about testing it. And when other people test it, the results indicate that these scores, again, these different intelligences, they are related and they form a G factor. <laughs> um, so Gardner, um, I'm, I'm completely and totally unconvinced that there are these independent abilities that don't have much or, or anything to do with each other. Um, there are logical problems with his theory and it just doesn't line up with, with empirical data. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't pay any heed to Gardner's theory at all. I, it, it, he published his book originally the year I was born. This is over 35 years ago. And he has just as much data now as he did 35 years ago. And I, I think that's pretty, pretty damning that in 35 years, he doesn't have more data than he did in the eighties to show yeah. that it's any better. Um, moving on, um, there's Sternberg's um, theory of practical intelligence. This is part of a larger theory he had about intelligence. Sternberg denies the existence of G. Um, he says that what mainstream psychologists call G is an analytical intelligence. It's an intelligence designed to solve logical problems analytically. And he's right, that, it, that is one of its functions. Mm -hmm. But he says there's also a, a creativity uh, in, that, that's a separate intelligence and another one called practical intelligence, which is the things you learn in your environment that no one teaches you explicitly. You just sort of pick them up and you don't learn them in the schoolhouse. There's sometimes very little logic behind them, but you just sort of figure it out as you go along if you're high in practical intelligence. And one thing I like about Sternberg a lot is that, yes, he has gathered data. He's tested his theory as best as he can. So point for him in favor that we don't have for Gardner. That being said, they're not very strong tests. Uh, Sternberg tends to stack the deck in favor of his theory. And even then, sometimes his, his theory, his data produce G anyway. Mm -hmm. What I criticize very heavily in the book is this idea that practical intelligence is this general ability, you don't learn it in school, but mm -hmm. Sternberg always tests it in very specific contexts. Mm -hmm. So he'll create a practical intelligence of running a business in the United States. What are the things you've picked up that no one teaches you in business school about running a business? And then he'll also create a separate test, and he's done this, for children in Kenya about the practical intelligence associated with their village culture. <laughs> and he'll say, look, American businessmen who do well on this test have high practical intelligence. Kenyan children who do well on a different test have high practical intelligence. These are the same ability. And I look at that and I say, are they? <laughs> yeah. If I'm skeptical that you can use an IQ test across cultures, and G certainly does exist in both these cultures, 
I, I'm really skeptical that a test of business knowledge and a test of Kenyan village culture are measuring the same thing. But I, I do applaud Sternberg for at least gathering data and, and for having a theory that I think um, thrusts creativity more into the limelight um, where, where it probably needs to be talked about more. And, yeah. and so I'm warmer to Sternberg's theory, but I don't think he has demonstrated that practical intelligence is both something specific enough for an environment that it can help you function in a one particular job or one particular cultural environment like a canyon village and something that's general that if you're thrown into a new environment that you will use the same ability yeah. to pick up skills in that environment i i don't think he's shown that and then finally, um, emotional intelligence. You used the name uh, Daniel Goleman. He wrote a, a bestseller in the 90s that really made the term popular. Mm -hmm. I, I prefer engaging with um, Peter Salovey's definition of emotional intelligence, which is, um, which is that it's the ability to understand your emotional states and to perceive the emotions of others and to use emotion and, and social cues to navigate the social world. Um, that, that seems to be the strongest definition of emotional intelligence I can find. Uh, Goleman's is just too broad. Goleman basically says anything that's not on an IQ test is emotional intelligence. And he includes intuition, he includes hunches, he includes um, self-esteem, I mean, all, all sorts of things that I'm, I don't think belong under the same umbrella. Mm -hmm. But I like how Salovey and his colleagues say, look, this is understanding yours and others' emotions and using that to navigate the social world and solve social interactional problems. I, I like that. Mm -hmm. That being said, <laughs> um, I think this has the most data behind it. Yeah. I'm not convinced fully that it's a separate ability. I haven't seen a reason why we can't use G in social situations. There's nothing on stone tablets from Mount Sinai saying that G can only be used on tests and in school. Yeah. Um, and so I think that the emotional intelligence advocates need to show that this is a separate ability and it's not just G being used in a social emotional context. But I do like the idea of bridging the cognitive world that I'm in with the emotional world that a lot of my other psychologist colleagues deal with. And it would it could lead to some major important breakthroughs in things like psychotherapy, um, family relations, and other areas if we can find a way to use people's thinking mm -hmm. to improve their social and emotional functioning. And I, I really am optimistic that there, there's something there. Whether it's a different ability, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I think some of my colleagues could really uh, make some major inroads. But I'm not ready to say as what, for example, is really common in business schools, mm 
to say that emotional intelligence is the most important thing you can hire for in a job or you want leaders high in emotional intelligence nothing else matters you get a lot of very strong statements in the business world it's all over linkedin i hate going on linkedin for this reason <laughs> it's all they, they talk about how important emotional intelligence is and and i i think that there has been some overstating of how important it is yeah and i think the jury is out about whether it's it's a separate ability and its degree of importance. And I really wish that there had been more data before it became a popular concept in the 90s and the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. About the socio-emotional aspect of intelligence, one thing that came to my mind now was that there are some life outcomes associated with IQ that probably point toward that. Like, for example, if I'm not mistaken, of course, I think that uh, higher IQs are associated with longer marriages, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that one's not a, a very strong association, about 0.2 correlation okay. or so. Uh, and of course, you don't know how long a marriage lasts until either it ends in divorce or one of the spouses dies. <laughs> so we do have to, and there's statistical methods to try to compensate for that, but you don't know for sure until you follow people for a long, long, long time. But yes, there are um, social emotional outcomes that are associated with IQ. Mm -hmm. um, some stronger than others. Um, as far as the, the divorce one goes, yeah, smarter people tend to divorce less, um, but we're not sure why. Is it because they're not under as many stressors because they also tend to make more money? Mm -hmm. um, are they better at choosing a, a spouse beforehand? Um, there, there could be other reasons, but it does seem like most life outcomes um, are, are more favorable for people with higher IQs, at least the probability is higher. Um, and that's a really strong indication that this is not just an ability that people use in school. Um, higher IQ people are less likely to die in car accidents. They're, mm -hmm. they're less likely to um, be hospitalized at a work accident, even if they work dangerous jobs, yeah. uh, things like that. And so that's one of the reasons why I am interested in this bridge between the social emotional world, because humans are social animals and the cognitive world, because there does seem to be a relationship. The big question then is why? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. Another very interesting or a thing that I find very interesting here is the fact that, and perhaps we can come back to this later in our conversation when we talk about the political, economic, moral aspects of uh, general intelligence and IQ, is that uh, there are people that at the same time that they are against the concept of G and IQ, they are for, they buy things like, for example, gardeners, multiple intelligences and other educational, 
educational tools that don't have lots of empirical support for them, right? Yeah, and I understand why Gardner's theory is popular. I mean, it makes you feel good. <laughs> sure, you may not be very good in school, but hey, you're you're excellent at at tennis. That shows you have high bodily kinesthetic intelligence. You're, you're smart a different way. Mm -hmm. um, I will admit, being a, an intelligence researcher does not make me very popular. Uh, people don't invite me to parties because I tend to say things that they don't want to hear. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm not surprised that Gardner's theory is extremely popular, especially in education, mm -hmm. because it's exactly what people want to hear. Um, he's never said this, but some people interpret it that Gardner's theory means that everybody is smart in some way. Mm -hmm. no, even though he, he hasn't said that. In fact, I've seen him on the record say that's not true. But... You know, it, it's sort of like it, it's sort of like getting a, another chance at bat. That oh, if you know you strike out in the logical intelligence, well, then you get another chance of being smart in this way or this way, this way. You know, and you get seven, eight, nine chances. <laughs> um, I, I'm not I'm not going to to dance around the issue. Um, a lot of people especially in the United States, see IQ research as elitist. Yeah. There's some people smarter than others. And because of that, they do better in school. And because of that, they earn more money. And because of that, they, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that easily creates some resentment. And I get where that's coming from. And I get why people like the happy talk of, of other theories more. Mm -hmm. That being said, Mother Nature doesn't care about our feelings. <laughs> she doesn't. If she did, um, she would be, a, yeah, this yeah. wouldn't be a, a dog eat dog world. There wouldn't be carnivores. <laughs> Mother Nature doesn't care about individual organisms and what happens to them. Uh, she doesn't care about our our desires of, of how we wish she had designed the world or how we wish evolution had turned out. It just is. And so you know, maybe this is low emotional intelligence on my part, <laughs> but I think it's more important to understand the world as it is, no yeah. matter how much we may like it or not, mm -hmm. and then adapt society to accommodate that reality and i think you can do much more good if you understand reality and adapt to it than if you try to fight it because mother nature has been been creating this reality for a lot longer than we have and um especially in humans it's very difficult to change evolutionary history in just one generation. <laughs> She's been making us the way we are for billions of years. Yeah. 
Okay, so let's talk now about the genetic and environmental aspects of IQ. So behavioral genetics, uh, if I remember correctly, in children, IQ is around 50% heritable and it goes up to 70 or 80% heritability in adults. Is that right? Yeah, in very, very young children, okay. in, in preschool or, or in kindergarten, the heritability of IQ is about, is, it's much lower, maybe about 25, 20, 30 percent. Okay. But it does go up as people age until um, by, yes, adolescence, it's about 50%. By middle age, it's about 70%, which means that um, environment plus genes, they have to add up to 100%. So if genetic influences are, are responsible for 50% of, of um, variance in people's intelligence, that means that all environmental influences combined have to be no more than the other 50%. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, you, you've, you've got that right, that um, heritability increases with age. Yes. And um, that, that was a surprise to a lot of the behavioral geneticists when they were discovering that in the 90s. They thought that the older people are, the more time the environment has to work its magic on you, and no, uh, environmental impacts don't last throughout the lifespan. They, uh, at least the, um, the ones that we can control, things like preschool, um, they don't seem to, to last as long. And the genetic effects seem to get stronger as people age. Mm -hmm. Is there any good explanation for that? I mean, does it have something to do with the fact that when people reach adulthood, they are more free to do to pursue the activities that they like the most and so there there would be some sort of active gene environment correlation there for example oh oh yes that that's that's likely one of the reasons um you know i think of i think of the uptight upper class parent who insists on reading to their child a half hour every day. And if I do this, they'll be smart and they'll love to read. And maybe, unbeknownst to them, their child has genes that make them not want to read and they think it's boring. <laughs> and so, yes, the parent reads to the child every day, but then as they grow up, they're not gonna still read to their child every day when the child's 17. Yeah. 17 year olds don't let you sit around with them and, and read to them. Uh, you know, you, you, if you ask your 17 year old to sit on your lap for a story time, they're going to say no and think that their parents are dorks. Um, and so that, that is some of it. As people age, they have more freedom to select activities and to select environments that they enjoy, that they're good at, and that they have a propensity to, to excel at. And so that's some of that. That would be the phrase you said, an active gene environment correlation is that, that um, there is an active choice of going into certain environments. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. I was going to say, there's also the passive gene environment <laughs> correlation where yeah. um, the environment is given to a person based on their genes. And this is what happens if you notice that your child 
um, is interested in music, and so you buy them an instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, functionally, they're pretty similar, um, but yeah, as people age, there there's more of the active G environment correlation going on because um, parents don't suddenly notice when their 35 year old might be musically inclined, and then finally buy them a violin. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So I could ask you about each uh, environmental approach that people have tried to raise IQ, but uh, let's lump them all together. And I would ask you, is there any environmental approach to raise IQ that we know of that really works? Uh, Unquestionably, yes. If you want to reduce the risk that a child will have a low IQ, um, don't lock them in a closet for, (laughs) for years. Don't raise them as a feral child in a forest or, or don't put them in a, in an orphanage where they don't go to school and they live with 30 other kids without much adult supervision. Um, so highly, highly neglectful uh, environments, definitely lower IQ. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, we do know that middle and upper class families do provide an environment that is advantageous over lower income families. The, the best study I've ever found about this um, came from Sweden. Mm-hmm. Where, um, uh, where every male who registers for the military draft has to take a, an intelligence test. And they're one of these Nordic countries that has these huge databases of health and family and, and IQ and income data. And some scientists found um, a group of, of males who had been adopted out mm-hmm. into middle and upper class homes. And um, they had, each of these males had at least one brother, full biological brother, who was raised by one or both birth parents, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is just amazing because most, to me, most birth parents either raise all of their children or, or, or none of them. Um, but, you know, they had full biological parents, uh, full biological brothers raised in different families. And the ones raised by the adopted families tend to have IQs almost five points higher. Hmm. And that tells us that something about these middle and upper class families raised IQ compared to the less favorable environments in generally that, that their brothers have been raised in by their birth parents. Um, and, and we see this uh, very commonly um, also in the United States that children um, in adoptive homes tend to have higher IQs than, than children in homes that would have been similar to their birth homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, having a home like that seems to raise IQ. The question then becomes okay, what about those homes mm-hmm. raises IQ? Because there's a lot of ways that middle and upper class homes differ from lower class homes. Mm-hmm. 
is it the money itself is it the parental behavior is it the schools they can afford to send the kids to that's where we don't know as much and um we haven't been successful in identifying the specific things yeah. that middle and upper class parents do and so uh, when i was in graduate school my brother visited me he was having a job interview and his wife had had a baby about um, two months before it was their first child and while we're driving around uh the city he says hey you're you're training to be an educational psychologist tell me what can i do to make my my newborn son smart and i said uh uh you know don't lock him up <laughs> make sure you feed him um have have a home that that would be good enough that you could adopt another child the authorities would let you do that i said beyond that you know, because my brother was college educated, his wife is too. I said, we don't really know the specifics beyond what you're already going to do. Mm -hmm. And so the things we know can raise IQ, avoiding neglect, avoiding you know, severe abuse, and have a home good enough to adopt. Yeah. It's good advice. We should probably mm -hmm. be doing that anyway. <laughs> Regardless of what we do to IQ, you should probably be giving children the best environment anyway. Sure. But beyond that, we don't know and we can't say what to do in these wealthy industrialized countries, um, which can be really frustrating. My, I told that to my brother. He said, really, that's it? All these years of this research, that's all you can tell me? <laughs> or, um, you know, I, I'm a parent now. It, yeah. It's actually very comforting. It's like, okay, I'm doing the best I can my home you know, i could adopt if, if my wife and i wanted to um there's nothing specific that we can do better and actually on on tough days with my kids it, it's it actually is a little bit of of comfort that okay you know i i may have yelled at one of them today but that probably didn't lower their iq <laughs> <laughs> yeah but but that in a way is something positive at least if people learned more about that they wouldn't put so much of a burden on parents right? oh yeah um i and i don't think parents would be as uptight about sending their kid to an academic summer camp and <laughs> making sure that they read to their child for at least 30 minutes a day and that they talk to the baby in the womb i think you would be a lot less uptight about that um and my wife and I, we can tell we're more mellow than a lot of our friends. <laughs> yeah. And what about educational interventions? Is there any educational intervention that work or not? Uh, definitely. Sending people to school teaches them how to solve <laughs> problems yeah. and think. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there, there is an education uh, intervention. It's called school. Yeah. And there's disagreements about how much school raises iq mm -hmm. and how it does so but everyone agrees that yes sending people to school especially higher quality um educational programs because not all of them are are equally good mm -hmm. um makes people smarter definitely again the problem is most people in wealthy countries are already doing this 
yeah. um, you know, it's, it's the law. Your child has to be educated. Um, beyond that, the, the research is not as promising. One of the big ones is uh, preschool, especially yeah. in the United States. We research Head Start a lot. Mm-hmm. Preschool is wildly popular, um, at least in the United States. Most, most children attend preschool in the U.S., especially middle and upper class um, children. Yeah, here too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Also. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and the research shows that it does provide benefits. Children who who go to preschool programs start kindergarten being more school ready. They tend to have more of the early reading skills, like identifying letters, knowing what sounds they make, mm-hmm. um, counting skills. But the best research shows that by the end of, by the beginning or end of first grade, any benefits of preschool have washed out. And there's some studies, very high quality ones, showing that by third grade, there are actually some negative consequences of preschool, which is a little scary when you think about it. It might actually (laughs) harm kids. Um, there, there's higher diagnosis rates for, um, for learning disabilities in some studies. There, um, are teacher ratings that the child's less mature or less, um, suited for school. They're not huge negative effects that make me say, shut down all the preschools now. (laughs) Um, but there doesn't seem to be much benefit of long-term, more than two years, Mm -hmm. uh, benefits to preschool. And um, we definitely get a decrease in IQ as as kids progress through the elementary grades uh, if they had an IQ boost early on. Um, I don't want people to interpret me to, um, as meaning that preschool is is useless. There, there can be other benefits. Mm-hmm. In Head Start, for example, they also teach kids how to brush their teeth. And um, a lot of these preschool programs for low-income families also provide immunizations and, and other things. Preschool does not have to raise IQ to be good. Sure. Uh, another example I give in, um, in my book is if the child's caregiver would rather be in the workforce, then preschool is good for the family. Mm-hmm. The family can earn more money, caregivers happier. It doesn't have to raise IQ to be good. Yeah. Um, that being said, I have a six-year-old. Um, we sent him, sent, we um, had him do an online preschool for about 15 minutes a day. That was his preschool. And we, we ended up not liking it. So for my four-year-old daughter, she doesn't get preschool at all. Um, in our family, we don't see long-term benefits for it. And um, we have the advantage that my wife can stay at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we have that choice. Um, but if I really thought that preschool were 100% great and wonderful, wouldn't I send my kids to it? Yeah. So sample size of two. <laughs> okay, so since we're talking about education and schooling, 
um, what about the Flynn effect? Because uh, I've already had Dr. Flynn on the show and one of the hypotheses that he puts on the table is that IQ in the West or the more developed countries has been raising uh, over the last few decades. And uh, one of the reasons would be that people are exposed to more complex material at school, for example. But what are the best explanations uh, to, uh, to, for the Flynn effect? Yeah, so the Flynn effect, which is that tendency for IQ scores to gradually increase in a country mm -hmm. over time. Yeah. Um, I love the research on the Flynn effect. I think it is the most powerful evidence that environment matters on IQ. Mm -hmm. And allow me to just editorialize for a second. James Flynn is the most intellectually honest um, He's the most scrupulous uh, scientist, and I, I admire him highly. I, I was actually going to nominate him for a Lifetime Achievement Award recently, and I found out that he had won it the previous year. <laughs> so um, I, I will always sing James Flynn's praises. But yes, his, um, his theory is that people are being exposed to more complex environments mm -hmm. and that basically through formal schooling from the informal environment, people are being forced to think and to engage at a higher level of abstract um, thinking mm -hmm. with our world. And I think the evidence is all around us that today's environment is much more cognitively complex than the past. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite examples, and, and Flynn uses this in one of his recent books, um, but I thought of it independently of, of um, reading that book. So it shows great minds think alike, I guess. Um, <laughs> but if you watch television, yeah, uh, especially half-hour comedies, half-hour comedies today in the United States at least, uh, characters speak very quickly. There are two or three plot lines you are expected to know information from previous episodes and apply it to current episodes um the humor is um high on wits it expects background knowledge but if you watch a show made 60 something years ago um, a good example is the classic I Love Lucy. It used to be one of the most popular TV shows of all time. If you watch a show made in the 1950s, the characters speak much more slowly. You get one plot line. It's not complex, and you're not expected to know anything from previous episodes. Mm -hmm. And so even watching TV is more cognitively complex today than it was 60 years ago. Um, our literature's more complex. Um, people go to school longer. And so I think he's, he's correct that this more complex environment's teaching people how to think abstractly and analytically. Mm -hmm. And then when they happen to take an IQ test, they think abstractly and they do better. 
Um, I do have a study planned with some archival data to test his idea that that people put on what he calls scientific spectacles. Yeah. Uh, the scientific way of thinking about the world in hypothetical terms and abstract categories and in terms of theories and general principles. Uh, and so I, I have some plans to work on that. Um, but I'm a busy man. Talk to me in like three or four years to see if I'm done with okay. that. Okay. <laughs> but I, I generally agree with Flynn about the causes of this. And um, I think that if we hunt and we're, we're careful uh, and we plan in advance, um, we can, we can s test his theory pretty well. Mm -hmm. So uh, about school, um, many politicians in the West particularly think that uh, ideally everyone should attend college. But is it the case that, uh, I mean, is this a good idea and can everyone benefit from going to college or not? I, I don't think so. Mm. Um, now, that isn't to say that we shouldn't offer opportunities to people. Sure. And I work at a university that um, has no minimum test score um, for admission. So, so I understand the value of having opportunities to people. I, I, I do love it here. Mm -hmm. But graduating from college takes above average intelligence. And countries differ, but in the United States, a good chunk of the cost of going to college comes out of the student's pocket. Mm -hmm. And if a person has an IQ of 90, then I don't think it's valuable to ask them to spend all this money, often going into debt, mm -hmm. to try to get a degree that they have very, very little possibility of getting. I, I think that's not only um, bad policy, I think it's cruel. Mm -hmm. um, why set someone up for almost certain failure? So, no, I don't think that college is for everyone. But I do think that society should try to find ways for as many people as possible to make a contribution. Mm -hmm. So can everyone get a four-year degree? No, but some people can get technical training. Some people can find gainful employment. Some people can, can join the military. Some people can work an apprenticeship. Um, I think that we need to talk more about other paths to the adult world of work mm -hmm. so that people find paths that work for them that don't force them to go to college where they may have a, a low chance of succeeding and now they're burdened with all the student debt. Mm -hmm. And um, in an ideal world, we would applaud the electrician mm -hmm. just as much as we applaud the person who got a bachelor's degree in communications. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think we'll completely do away with the elitism of what having a college degree means, mm -hmm. but when you need a, a plumber like my family did about five months ago, 
You're sure as heck thankful, and I don't care if you have a PhD. You get off your high horse pretty quickly when someone can do something like that that you can't. And I think we need to talk up all sorts of career paths and talk about college in the terms of being one option that is viable for some people, not viable for others. And there's nothing wrong if you, if you choose to do an apprenticeship, for example. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, perhaps I will introduce this topic now, since we're talking about uh, how people that have lower IQs navigate the world. I mean, isn't it also the case that people with high IQs um, can be very easily detached from the reality of people that have low IQs because, I mean, in a sense, in terms of cognitive ability, uh, people are living in two different worlds, right? And if they don't have contact with those lower IQ people, then it's really hard to understand uh, how they live. Right? Oh, definitely. And, and Charles Murray talks about this in his book, Coming Apart. Mm -hmm. um, but very much in Western countries, and this trend's accelerating in the United States, people are balkanizing themselves so that they live and work and enjoy leisure and socialize with people who are more or less at their IQ level. And they're not doing this consciously. No one's giving an IQ test to a potential friend. <laughs> um, but where do most young adults meet their partners or their spouses? College and work and their circle of friends. And you know, where do most people do their socializing in their 20s? when you know when they're looking for romantic partners yeah work and college and you know, their, their local social environment and so um people start balkanizing and then this process probably starts in, in adolescence they start balkanizing by iq levels and um by the time they're in adulthood they they're hanging around people with a similar iq level as them and they don't realize that they're you know, the fish doesn't realize that it's wet. It just seems so normal. Yeah. Um, and this is at both extremes. You, you have, uh, I saw a study that in the United States recently, uh, a majority of physicians are married to someone who either has a master's degree or a law degree or a doctorate degree or mm -hmm. is themselves a physician. Yeah. And you know, physicians are smart people. I couldn't become one. I couldn't do <laughs> chemistry. So they're smarter than me. Um, and so when smart people are marrying smart people who tend to also come from smart families and have smart um, friends and smart colleagues at their work and smart neighbors because they live in a, in a nice area, the same thing's happening at the other extreme. High school dropouts tend to, to form families with other high school dropouts. Mm -hmm. um, they tend to live in the same neighborhoods. And we're getting less and less crossover than we used to. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm the victim of this. I tell the story in the book of when I was called in to jury duty and there were 50 of us from my county. And we had to say, among other things, our education level. And I was surprised that at the end, I was the only one with a doctorate. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, I know all sorts of people with doctorates. They're my colleagues. They're my former <laughs> students. Um, you know, I have uh, a brother with a doctorate and another brother's an optometrist. And then I later found out, oh, about 2% of Americans have a doctorate, which would be about one out of 50. <laughs> so I mean, I'm, I'm a victim of this too. Um, and it does take effort to understand what life is like for someone who does not have your IQ level. Smart people think it's so easy. Well. You don't want to be poor. We'll make sure you get a job. Make sure you get yeah. some training. Don't have a child out of wedlock and boom, you'll never be poor. And I say, whoa, 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 hold on. Those things are a heck of a lot harder for someone whose IQ is 20 points lower than yours, let alone 30 or 40. Yeah. The world of someone with an IQ of 80, mm -hmm. below average, but not so low that they have a disability is one where long-term planning is very hard. It's one where impulsivity um, can override dis the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. It's um, a world where um, it's hard to understand why one choice might be better in the long-term than the other. Mm -hmm. It's and one, there are also simple tasks, or at least that are simple to normal or high IQ people that are really hard for low IQ oh people yeah. to perform, right? Oh, yeah. Even just graduating from high school, mm -hmm. something that someone with an IQ of 100 or above, at least in the United States, can do as long as they're showing up and occasionally turning an assignment, is very difficult for someone with an IQ of 75 or 80. Yeah, And the, the things, I mean, I was just talking with um, a friend the other day, we were talking about our retirement plans and I have, you know, this one for my job. Plus I have a separate one. And he said, oh, I had the option of that one in my job, but I chose a different one that had a higher interest rate, but I had to contribute more. Yeah. We're both above average intelligence. We could understand the pros and cons someone with an IQ of 80 might not understand why you might want a defined contribution plan that you're invested with in the, from day one of your job, instead of a defined benefit plan that you have to stay in a job for 10 years for. Even the terminology is confusing, mm -hmm. let alone understanding the pros and cons of each one. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, it, it's a very different world, and um, I I suggest to people, and I try that they, and I try to do these in my life, that they find ways to mingle with people from different cognitive levels. Um, it's not always easy, <laughs> and honestly, there's some things that I would never want to do. Um, you know, like talking about TV, for example. I don't have data, but I have the strong sneaking suspicion that TV wrestling is probably a very low IQ form of entertainment. <laughs> the, 
the fake wrestling with the contrived storylines. You wouldn't catch me dead watching that. <laughs> oh, okay, so but, I have to say I'm a wrestling fan and that. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, <crap>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Now you're going to edit the review, the, the interview to make me look bad. Great. No, no, I no mean, there's <laughs> no problem. No problem. No, I'm, I'm talking the fake one. We have the United States um, where it's all. Staged. Yeah, but I'm, I'm talking... talking about that one. Oh, WWE God. and yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there are things that we can do. You know, I, I think of local sports leagues. I think of, of, um, religious organizations um, that do get people in contact with people from outside their cognitive bubble. Yeah. And I would really hope that um, high IQ people will not be elitist and looking down on less fortunate people. And I, I, I don't, uh, maybe I'm naive, but I hope that it can, that, my pleas in my book for for getting out of your bubble um, will help Americans and people worldwide be maybe a little more understanding and sympathetic to people who aren't like them. Yeah. Okay, so just before I move on to the next question, let me just say that I know several high IQ people that love, love wrestling, so Okay. The low IQ ones don't have to feel disheartened. I, I told you I, I didn't have data, um, <laughs> and so now I do, and I will now reject that hypothesis. Um, I'm very sorry. <laughs> no, there's no problem. Okay, so what about the, is there any connection between IQ and mental illness, because of course there's those very prominent examples of historical figures that were really, really intelligent, but also suffered from different mental illnesses like schizophrenia, depression, and so on. But is there really some scientific grounding to that? Generally, for most mental health diagnoses, there is a lower risk of a mental health problem as people get smarter. Yeah. Um, high IQ seems to be a protective factor against most mental health diagnoses. There are a couple exceptions. I've seen these replicate in the research, so I'm pretty sure they're not flukes. One is um, risk for autism spectrum disorders. And um, it does seem that um, there's a greater risk for children to be diagnosed with autism in families where the parents are, are more educated, um, mm -hmm. which is correlated with IQ. Another one seems to be eating disorders. Um, anorexia and possibly bulimia seem to be um, more common in higher IQ people. Mm -hmm. And then one that seems to have no correlation with IQ is depression, uh, which is one of the most common mental health challenges yeah. in the world. That seems to be uncorrelated with IQ. Other, um, other mental health challenges, diagnoses, 
seem to be more common lower on the IQ scale. Schizophrenia you mentioned is one. Mm -hmm. Bipolar disorder seems to be one. And um, for a long time, we really weren't sure why. Yeah. But the behavioral genetics research in the past couple of years has shown that for at least some of these disorders, there seem to be some shared genes going on or some genes that are, are correlated with each other. So that um, if someone has genes that, that lower their IQ, some of those genes may also <clears throat> um, increase their risk for a disorder. Um, that does not rule out the possibility of environmental impacts. In fact, I think environment um, risk factors are very important for a lot of these. But it seems that being more intelligent is a protective factor against most disorders with the exceptions that, that I already mentioned. There is the idea of the mad scientist of yeah. you know, the, the smarter and smarter someone gets, the more likely they are to be poorly adjusted and, and, and stuff. Um, there doesn't seem to be strong evidence for that. In fact, the higher someone's IQ is, the, the better their work outcomes seem to be. Yeah. And um, there doesn't seem to be a, an increased risk um, beyond what we see from a linear relationship with, with other disorders. So, um, you know, I, I'm not worried that the mad scientist with an IQ of 170 is going to build robots that take over the world <laughs> and that they're dealing with their own neuroses and putting them on the, I, I'm not too worried about that. Okay, great. Uh, let's now talk about group differences. So there are sex differences, racial differences, that perhaps is a more contentious topic. But let's start with sex differences. Are there any major, any important sex differences in IQ? Um, as far as average differences go, I do have some colleagues who think that males in adulthood might have a slight one to three point advantage yeah. over females on average. Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced of that. Um, I, I just haven't seen strong, consistent evidence across samples the way that I would want to. But, but there is a camp in, in the field who thinks that in adulthood, males may have a, an advantage. Yeah. The one that's, that's more certain is the difference in variability. Males seem to be more variable in not just their IQ, but in many um, characteristics. Um, they're more variable in their verbal ability. They're more variable in their processing speed. They're more variable in their working memory. Males are more variable in their height, their weight. Um, and, and this is really common in the animal kingdom. And most, um, on most traits, males are more variable. And even Char Charles Darwin noticed this. So this is not some unique thing. Um, at one time on Twitter, I said, does anyone know any other examples? And I was avalanche for an entire Saturday <laughs> with examples. The, the big exception seems to be um, female sex characteristics. So like bus size, women are more variable than men. Um, distribution in, fat, uh, in the thighs, for example. Okay, women are more variable in men than in, in that. 
uh, and a couple of other minor exceptions. So it's not it's not crazy to ask. Well, you know, are men more variable? And the answer seems to be yes. Mm -hmm. For IQ, it seems to be about a five to fifteen percent difference in standard deviations. That doesn't sound like a lot, mm -hmm. and it's not something you notice in most aspects of life. But because male scores get more spread out, there are, compared to women, a surplus of males at the top and the bottom of the distribution. I give some examples of this in my, in my book. Um, one is that there are, by about a three to one ratio, more males diagnosed with intellectual disabilities than females. In the United States, uh, males get more special education services than females. At the top end of the scale, mm -hmm. we tend to find more males scoring above high IQ thresholds. Um, and so we tend to see more males in, for example, very, very advanced gifted programs. We tend to see, um, you know, I, um, I gave examples of, of quiz shows on TV in the U.S. and the U.K. Mm -hmm. Males disproportionately win um, these, these quiz shows. Um, one that I watch regularly is, is Jeopardy in the United States. Yeah. Males win about 70% of Jeopardy games, mm -hmm. even though they're only 60% of the, the contestants. And so the further out into the extremes you get, the more you start noticing, hey, there's a lot more males than females here. And it's because of that variability difference. And we're still arguing about why that variability difference happens. Mm -hmm. um, but it is there and among psychologists it's not a controversial thing to talk about although it is controversial when you start getting non-psychologists in the conversation because they don't understand that this is everywhere and we've been finding this result for decades yeah what about race differences and perhaps we should start with the concept of race i mean i've already had different um, anthropologists, evolutionary psychologists, and so on on the show, and different people give me different perspectives and answers. I mean, there are anthropologists that at least concede that we have different human populations in our evolutionary history. Now, with migration and so on, perhaps they are not that clear cut, let's say. Uh, but do you think that the concept of race is scientifically valid or not? Um, you know, as you said, there, there's different definitions. I think some definitions are valid and some are not. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the one that I think we can all, at least all scientists can agree is not valid. Yeah. If you consider a race a firm, category of people where everyone inside the category has traits in common and those traits are not found anywhere outside the category and people unambiguous unambiguously belong to a racial group we can clearly draw the lines around them then no that that's a scientifically garbage disproven definition mm -hmm. 
the analogy I use in my book is that I talk about a racial group as being a giant extended family. Mm -hmm. They are people who share ancestors who in the past lived in generally the same part of the world. Yeah. And before 1492, long, <laughs> long distance travel and migration were, were very rare, at least within one person's lifetime, it was rare. Yeah. And, and so generally, um, people whose ancestors are from one particular part of the world tend to be more closely related to each mm -hmm. other than they are to people whose ancestors are from more distant nations. And so there is not any one unique trait that is found in all Europeans and is not found in other groups. And there's no one trait that's found in Africans that's not found in non-Africans. And yes, there's not firm boundaries between these groups. There, there's a gradual fuzzy change. The easiest one to study is, is, um, is Eurasia. Um, people whose ancestors come from Ireland, France, the Iberian Peninsula, the UK, you know, they, they don't have a lot of differences physically from people whose ancestors come from Central Europe. Uh, but there are some minor differences once you get to Eastern Europe, and then there's more once you get to Central Asia, and there's more differences between Western Europeans and East Asians. As you go from West to East, there's not a sudden magical change where everyone on this side of the border and everyone on that side of the border is different. There's this gradual continuum. And, and so that's just because, you know, yeah, there's rivers and mountains, but there's not an ocean or another major barrier. You could walk from Europe to East Asia as Marco Polo did. Mm -hmm. Not many people did. Um, but that, that there was a gradual, um, evolutionary psychologists call this a clinal change, a continual change that doesn't change the fact that we can identify an East Asian and a Western European and say, these are different, even though there's a group in the middle that has some traits from one, some traits from another. So I like the idea of fuzzy boundaries extended families that are more related to each other than they are to people outside of the group. And I like flexible categories. I think sometimes it makes sense to talk about people as just one species. And sometimes it makes sense to talk about people in terms of continent level races. And sometimes there's value in drilling down to lower, more local groups. Um, and just because right now it makes sense to talk about differences between Italians and Norwegians doesn't mean that another conversation about Europeans is, is invalid. You, you can look at different levels of analysis at different times. And so I talk about extended families who are more closely related um, and who's, who share a common ancestry. 
And that to me makes the most sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't like the idea that, oh, here's a group that's always existed. Here's a, here's a group that, um, you know, the idea, for example, of, oh, here are pure Icelanders. I mean, that, that mm -hmm. to me is absurd. These people came from somewhere else. They didn't evolve in Iceland. Yeah. <laughs> and over the course of 500 years, there was some, not much, but some genetic inflow. And there's been some genetic outflow. And that's only increased in the past 100 years. The, mm -hmm. the mixing has only increased. And I think that 500 years from now, some of the groups we talk about today just won't make sense anymore. And, and that's fine. But for the time being, I see right now as a snapshot of recent evolutionary history of where people's ancestors lived 500 years ago mm -hmm. and, and what the recent evolutionary history of the previous couple thousand years was for those ancestors. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm rambling. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. So with the groups that we have today, that we will call here races, are there any uh, important IQ differences and do we know if, there are, if they are genetic or environmental? Um, the best research on that comes from the United States, which is more diverse than most wealthy countries. And in the United States, yes, we do see average differences where Asian Americans tend to have a, an average IQ of about 105 or so. Um, white Americans tend to have an IQ average of about 100. Hispanics at about 90 and African Americans at about 85. And um, those are just averages. Um, each of these groups has a distribution and there's huge amounts of overlap. And you can find people from all these groups at different IQ levels, but the average differences are there. And um, the best evidence is that um, these are not 100% environmental. Um, it's hard to get evidence because this is not a popular topic for people to research. This is probably the most controversial topic in all of science. Yeah. But the, the egalitarian viewpoint that all of these average differences are purely due to environmental differences is not supported by the data. Mm -hmm. And I, I walk through what some of that, that data um, shows. And, um, and so we do know that at, within the United States, these differences are at least partially genetic, but mm -hmm. we don't have any good data about how strong the genetic influence is. So on a scale from zero to 100%, it might just be 5% genetic, 10% genetic. Well, so who cares? <laughs> you know, let's put the controversy to rest and <laughs> you know, because a 5%, 10% genetic influence is not something you're going to to notice in daily life. Yeah. If it's larger than that, 30, 50, 60, I have one colleague who thinks this might be 80% genetic. Mm. Then we need to know that so that we can devise policies. 
because successful social policies are are based on real understandings of human nature. Mm-hmm. And I see why it's controversial and people have my my sympathy for um for why they get nervous with this research. Mm-hmm. But um but I, I think that it's best for us to understand reality so that we can cope with it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't think I'm going to get a lot of, of popular awards for saying, <laughs> hey, genes matter. I don't know how much. I don't think we have data to give a percentage on it, but it's not zero. Mm-hmm. Um but I think it's more important to talk about reality um, because the evidence is only going to accumulate. And I, I take umbrage to people who just uh, dismiss any of the evidence completely because it is accumulating. And whether you like it or not, there probably is a genetic influence on racial differences in IQ. But again, like I said, it may be very trivial. And if it is, we need to know that. If it's not, we need to know that. Ignorance is not bliss. Yeah. And this is interesting because at least in the U.S., the average IQ for black people is lower than for white people, for example. And there are several conservative people and there's a conservative narrative that I mean, not related to IQ here, but they say that some of the socioeconomic outcomes that black people get are due to single parent homes and things like that. But particularly if the differences are mostly genetic, then, for example, rates of crime and things like that could be at least partially explained by uh iq differences right yeah that's a that's an argument that um people have made and um and it's not an argument that's that's entirely unrealistic Mm -hmm. um i'm a little more skeptical about simple explanations of complex Mm -hmm. human (laughs) problems um I don't, you know, there is the the socially conservative viewpoint of, well, look, 70% of African-American children are born out of wedlock and the majority live in poverty and, and um, the schools aren't as good in urban areas. And uh, you can't have a very environmentally oriented conservatism. Mm-hmm. And so I don't like it when people say, oh, the genetic explanation is conservative, the environmental explanation is liberal. No, you can have an environmental conservatism and you can have a genetic liberalism. Yeah. If these differences are partially genetic, well, you have the best argument possible for affirmative action. Sure. You can make the argument of, look, these differences are 30, 40, 50, 80, whatever percent you think is, is enough that it's a problem. These differences are partially genetic. And so this is why we need affirmative action, because we don't want a racial underclass. 
and we need to open up opportunities. And yes, there's a loss of efficiency, but if we don't do this, then it will destabilize the country. And this is why we need to perpetuate affirmative action. It's not going to go away after two or three generations like mm -hmm. what was promised in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And so you can have a genetically informed liberalism. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm actually not very interested in politics, so uh, maybe it's easy for, easier for me to just step back. But um, I think undoubtedly environment does matter, but just like how beyond severely neglectful environments, lower individual IQ, but we don't know the details for more typical environments, I think the same thing is true at the um, racial and ethnic differences. We know that, that African-Americans have worse environments on average than white Americans, but you can't just say, oh, it's the environment. Well, if you're gonna create policy, you need to say what aspect of the environment you need to change <laughs> and what evidence you have that it will improve things. Right. And you've, so um, I'm skeptical that, um, there's going to be a total explanation mm -hmm. that comes down to either genes or environment. I think even if heritability is high, yeah. there's no gene in your body that is whispering in your ear, hey, <laughs> you should take this job. <laughs> there's no gene in your body that helps you answer an IQ test. Genes are just molecules that a code for amino acids. Yeah. Um, so if genes do have an impact on social outcomes like socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. it's going to be because they do something biologically, which then has an influence on behavior. Mm -hmm. And even then, it's not that simple. Some of those behaviors might choose what environment you end up in. Yeah. And that behavior has to happen in an environment anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I, I get really perplexed when I see people get nervous about genetic differences and I, and I, I see why they do, but I say, whoa, that doesn't mean we can ignore environment or that things are fruitless or hopeless. I, I look at it and say, okay, you know, you can devise different policies and, and you can create a genetically informed understanding of what it is the environment does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that another problem is that people tend to associate IQ research with past controversies, like, for example, the eugenics movement, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, I have a chapter about that in the book. Um, and I thought I knew a thing or two about the eugenics movement before I started researching it about five years ago or so. Um, and it's, it's a more complex story than I think most people realize. Mm -hmm. Most people have this really simplistic view that Sir Francis Galton starts this movement in the late 1800s. Um, it grows in popularity people start doing things like um, 
forced sterilizations in the United yeah. States. And, um, you know, there's one atrocity after another until it leads to the concentration camps and the atrocities of Nazi Germany. And then 1945, everyone realizes how much of a horrible mistake this was. And we disavow it and goodbye eugenics. Mm -hmm. That's not what happened. Um, it was a very popular social movement and a very complex one. And it wasn't just Galton and his, his students and his successors, including the intelligence researchers. This was a lot of society all over the world. There was a eugenic society in Japan. There was one in Argentina, one in Brazil, um, you know, Canada, France, um, all of Scandinavia. And these are just the countries I know about. I'm sure there's others I don't. Uh, this was a worldwide respected social movement. Mm -hmm. But I think because it was so international that there was a lot of disagreement. What different eugenicists thought was acceptable and, and what traits to, to try to control varied from country to country and even from person to person. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, unquestionably, the early intelligence researchers were eugenicists, but that doesn't mean automatically that they were trying to put people in concentration camps. Mm -hmm. And the couple I've, the couple of intelligence researchers I've studied the most um, had very complex views that don't fall into simple categories of all good and all bad. And, and I've written uh, one article about this. I'm working on another. Um, and, and it was mostly biologists and activists doing this movement. Yes, the intelligence researchers subscribed to it, but they weren't the leaders. Mm -hmm. um, but because of that, and because one of the reasons why in the United States people were sterilized against their will was what was called at the time feeble-mindedness. Yeah. We would today call an intellectual disability. Because of that, and it's easy to mine quotes from, from people that, that are very racist and discriminatory um, from the period. Um, sometimes the field gets smeared as still being eugenics or it hasn't escaped its history. Yeah. Um, and so I understand that and I understand the worry of, oh, if we go back to genetic explanations of behavior, we're on a slippery slope to the concentration camps again. I see why people say that. Mm -hmm. And I say in the book that we have to realize that eugenics is still with us. We don't call it that, mm -hmm. but the laws allowing sterilization in the United States, the last one was repealed in 1981. Japan didn't repeal its law until I think it was 1996. I mean, it's not like 1945 happened and suddenly we just stopped completely. Yeah. This lasted for about another generation. And we still do things that are eugenic in nature. They change the gene pool of the following generation. Mm -hmm. um, Scandinavia, uh, Scandinavian countries passed some of the world's first laws permitting abortion of disabled viable yeah. fetuses and you can have a moral argument about whether that's that's good or bad morally 
But the reason those laws were passed were for eugenic purposes, and it is eugenic. If you mm -hmm. abort a fetus because of a disability, you are doing eugenics. No one calls it mm -hmm. that, but it is. When people know or suspect that they're a carrier for a genetic disease, and so they get tested to see if they might pass this on to children, and because of the test results, they decide not to have children. That's eugenic in nature. Yeah. We don't call it that, but it is. And I give some other examples. And so I think the difference between today's eugenics and the eugenics of 100 years ago is about choice. Hmm. The atrocities of the 20th century eugenics movement were because people's choices were taken away. Their human rights were violated, either because they were sterilized against their will or they were kept in a, in a community where they weren't allowed to associate with the opposite sex and, and have children, um, or they were denied freedom for other reasons, or they, they were sterilized in prison. Or, in the German example, they were euthanized in the community or, and then put in concentration camps and taken to the gas chambers by the millions. Mm -hmm. What all of these atrocities have in common is a violation of human rights and removing people's freedom from them. Someone in power was deciding that this person does not deserve the same rights as mm -hmm. they do yeah and that's i think how modern eugenics differs is that if someone decides not to have a child because they're a carrier of the cystic fibrosis gene well who am i to argue with that i can't force them to have children yeah um and again you can argue about the morals of, of aborting a, a viable fetus that has a disability, but most countries where this is legal have made a decision that this is a choice that that a mother can make and that the government has decided to butt out of that choice. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that um, that the likelihood of any atrocities coming out of research on genetic differences between groups um, is low in countries where human rights are highly valued and they're highly um, they're highly protected. Mm -hmm. And so I don't worry about atrocities coming out of this research in the United States mm -hmm. because we are so conscious of equal rights and, and, and civil rights and human rights. I worry about it in China. Mm -hmm. Um, China, yes, the Han Chinese ethnic group is the largest ethnic group in the world, but there are dozens of minority groups, and that's where I worry about, about atrocities maybe happening, because the atrocities are happening now in China and have for decades. Mm -hmm. um, but when people say, no, you can't research genetic differences between African Americans and white Americans because of what some people said 90 years ago, I, I don't get worried because I say, no, we, 
we have a human and civil rights framework of understanding these things that I think makes atrocities extremely, extremely unlikely. I think it's far more likely that we'll use this information to create policies that help groups that score lower. Because that, that's, the, that's the impulse in the United States and the left and right. We want to help the downtrodden. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't imagine it's going to change suddenly just because a study comes out where we finally can talk about a percentage. I, um, that, that's just my opinion, though. But like I said, just one view of one American. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we've already touched a bit on political issues, social issues. What about the education system? I mean, we talk, we've talked about several different aspects of how IQ research might inform the education system, but in general, how would, uh, let's say, G-informed education system work? And what are some of the changes that you think with the knowledge that we have now could be put in place? Uh, I can't speak about other countries, but at least in the U.S., the education system's in denial. Um, and I see why. Uh, I, as a parent, I want my child's teacher to really believe that she can make a huge difference in what kids know, and she can, she can make a, a kid bloom and, and learn a lot and to really excel and to open up talents and abilities and knowledge that they didn't know that they had. Yeah. I really want a teacher to believe that because every day they'll come <laughs> in, they'll be motivated. Please. I, I, I get that. Um, and, and there are inspiring teachers. We all have a teacher we can think back on that, that, that did make a difference to us. Um, but again, we don't get invited, you know, research, intelligence research don't get invited to a lot of parties <laughs> because the narrative from this research very much goes against that culture yeah. in the educational system in the United States. Um, I'm not saying that teachers shouldn't try, but I do think that... Um, that we do need to recognize that certain policies are not realistic. We already talked about college for everyone. That, that's mm -hmm. not realistic and that doesn't help everyone. Yeah. We have a popular policy in the United States um, called algebra for all. The idea that every kid should take algebra before the end of ninth grade. Mm. And the majority of kids can take and finish algebra by then, but not all. And um, when a child doesn't pass algebra by the end of ninth grade, well, if you don't consider the fact that some people can't pass algebra that early, some people can't ever pass algebra. Yeah. If you don't believe that, if you don't take into account that reality, then when a kid doesn't pass algebra, the finger pointing starts. 
it's the teacher's fault because he wasn't a very good math teacher. No, it's the principal's fault because I didn't get the support I needed to teach this remedial class. No, it's the legislature's fault because we didn't get the funds we needed to be able to, to have the support system we needed. No, it's the parent's fault because if the parents would check the kid's homework and help them, then the kid would do better. No, it, the finger pointing starts. Yeah. And I think that finger pointing and, and blaming is extremely unproductive in the education system. We all want the same thing. We want kids to learn as much as possible. We want to train people for adult careers and making a contribution to society. And when we start blaming, we stop working together. Mm -hmm. And so I would be more in favor of a policy of, you know, a soft goal. We want as many people as possible taking algebra in middle school. But if a kid doesn't pass it, let's not start playing the blame game. Let's see if the reason is because of low IQ. Let's see if it's because they don't have anywhere safe to do their homework, et cetera. But if it ends up being low IQ, let's create an educational program to accommodate their needs instead of just assuming everyone needs algebra. Mm -hmm. um, another one, this comes from the world I come from, um, with gifted education, even the gifted world's resistant to IQ research. Um, but one of the strongest pieces of, of uh, one of the strongest findings from intelligence research is that um, smarter people learn faster. Mm -hmm. Some kids don't need 13 years to go from kindergarten to the 12th grade material. Some kids can learn that in less than 13 years. Mm -hmm. So if I had my way, we would be doing a lot more grade skipping. There's, there really hasn't been any research whatsoever to show that there's negative effect, uh, effects from um, a qualified grade skipping, uh, grade skipping a qualified child. But it's extremely rare in the U.S. Um, about, in my state, about a quarter of children in 11th grade are ready for college immediately. So at least a quarter of kids, about a quarter of kids could skip a grade at some point in my state. Mm -hmm. And that, that's probably typical. And yet only about two to 3% of kids ever skip a grade. Yeah. And so I look at it, it's like, we should be get, we should be doing grade skips about 10 times more often. Why don't we? Because the education system doesn't say, hey, Smarter kids don't need 13 years. Here's a smart kid. Let's try to prepare them for a grade skip and time it. And so um, I think that we would find more classrooms with kids from different ages if we consider G. I think we would start designing policies that keep the needs of struggling kids and gifted kids in mind both at the same time. Yeah. And I think we'll have a lot fewer or, or no one size fits all policies. And 
unfortunately, the education system is very much in denial, uh, not just denial, there's, there's active resistance to intelligence research. Mm -hmm. And um, at my university several years ago, um, a colleague of mine um, introduced me to the dean of the School of Education here. I'm in the psychology program. Um, mm -hmm. She introduced me to the Dean of the School of Education. And my colleague said, look, you know, Dr. Warren can teach a, a great gifted education class. Um, you know, he's a great scholar. It, it would really um, prepare students well. And the Dean said, well, what, how would you teach us? What would be your philosophy? And I said, well, I would teach modern theories of intelligence and how they impact the education system. She says, would you talk about IQ? I said, yes. She's, and she said, would you talk about Gardner's theory? I said, only to show that it's not correct. <laughs> and she said, we won't be having you teach. And that, that, that was that. Yeah. Because I, I won't support Gardner and I'll talk about IQ. No, we're not going to have you teach in our college of ed. All right, then. Yeah. I guess that it's an entire culture, educational culture that is set in place and it will be really hard to change people's minds. Okay, mm -hmm. so I have one final question uh, and this is another controversial one. So with the knowledge that we have about the behavioral genetics of IQ and intelligence, um, to what extent are, are we able to predict, uh, I mean, outcomes at an individual level? Because I've already had people on the show that differed in their opinions. For example, Robert Plowman uh, says that uh, we already have enough knowledge and particularly with the SNP uh, ships uh, to predict uh, the course that a particular child will follow and to put them in, for example, special education or some sort of program for the gifted students. Uh, but uh, I've also had Kevin Mitchell that said that we have to take into account that behavioral genetic studies only tell us the percentage of the variation that is explained by heritable factors in a given population, in a given environment, and that works for the group, but we don't have uh, enough knowledge to make predictions at an individual level. So uh, do you have any position in regards to this question or not? Yes, um, these DNA-based predictions, they use a, a variable called a polygenic score. I'm sure some of the other guests have, have talked about that. Yeah. And there's different polygenic scores. The best one is a polygenic score predicting people's adult educational attainment. How mm -hmm. many years of education will you accomplish mm -hmm. by the time you um, finish your education in adulthood? Yeah. And that polygenic score right now is a better predictor of adult educational attainment than childhood socioeconomic status is. Mm -hmm. Which 
is is a real game changer because the assumption in education and in sociology and some other fields is oh well socioeconomic status determines so much let's just fix poverty and all these other problems will be fixed and the shows actually know socioeconomic status is not that good of a predictor and known dna variations right now are a better predictor Mm-hmm. than knowing the parent's income level is yeah. and every every semester i just floor my students in in my class where i say right now i can give a saliva swab to a baby the day it's born and predict how long they'll stay in school and it's a better predictor than knowing the parents incomes and, and my students are just floored because they've been told their whole lives that childhood socioeconomic status is this all important determinant and it's not it's an influence but it's not as powerful as we like to think. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that technology exists right now. You know, I, I had a baby born this, this year. I could give her a DNA test and it would predict how long she stays in school. I don't think that the current predictions from polygenic scores are accurate enough to make decisions about education um, strategies for individuals. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think a better predictor, for example, of a child's future educational attainment would probably be their IQ in adolescence. Um, by then, IQ stabilized, the genetic influences have stabilized. Um, and a lot of the, the non-cognitive variables have, have, have stabilized. Um, kids who start, kids who have ambitions to be a scientist in adolescence tend to end up going to more school. And so I, I think those are better predictors than the current polygenic scores are. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we're ready to make predictions that can influence individual decisions right now. They're, they're great for research purposes, but um, I actually just submitted a manuscript to a journal this week where I said, hey, educators, you need to be ready. This is coming. Yeah. I know you don't like talking about genes, but it's coming, and you need to have policies. And one of my suggested policies was that because the scores aren't accurate right now, we shouldn't be using them temporarily mm-hmm. but and i think you can tell with my language i think the day will come when they are accurate enough and i think within the next decade polygenic scores will be accurate enough for us to say here's a child and we know at birth that he's at risk for autism let's start the intervention when he's four months old and not wait till three, four, five when the kid seems to be really odd and doesn't want to play with other children. Mm-hmm. And I think within the next decade, we'll, we'll be able to say, hey, thank you for your DNA test. You're at risk for depression. Mm-hmm. And so if you start noticing these symptoms, get help early before you start getting suicidal thoughts. 
for the education system, I think within the next decade, we'll get good enough polygenic scores that we can start making decisions about, hey, this child's at risk for dyslexia. Let's start the intervention before they're years behind their peers. This child's at risk for uh, a math dyscalculia. Let's start the intervention now. Now, you mentioned gifted programs and using genes to put kids in gifted programs sounds like brave new world to some people. And I see why. Um, and I, I empathize with that reaction. But in gifted education, we've been looking for decades for a way to select gifted kids that doesn't have a language barrier that isn't biased across racial and ethnic groups that can't be gamed by wealthy parents sending their kids to a, a cram school yeah. that is you know that is resistant to cheating and guess what that's exactly what polygenic scores do <laughs> this should be yeah. the holy grail in gifted education like I said, it's not there yet. And um, uh, Kevin Mitchell is correct that uh, these scores are not portable across racial groups right now. I think they will be probably a lot sooner than some people realize. Mm -hmm. But that's another um, proposed policy that I have is that I think districts would be realistic in saying until the scores are accurate enough and accurate enough for all kids from various groups, we shouldn't be using them at all. And I think that's a justifiable policy. So I, I'm sort of halfway between. I'm not in the Pullman camp of, <laughs> sure, let's go for it. Let's start putting people in programs. And I'm not in the Kevin Mitchell camp of, nope, uh-uh, this is a bad idea. I'm in the camp of it's a good idea, mm -hmm. but not now. Let's get the predictions more accurate before we start um, building policies. And even then, um, you know, I have some other policies. One that I suggested was that um, phenotype should trump genotype. In other words, some people beat the genetic odds. Yeah. And if uh, a kid is really bright, they excel in their schoolwork and they're motivated, well, throw them in the gifted program. Who cares what the polygenic score says? The, the phenotype's more important than the genotype. Even if the phenotype says that this child is a low risk for dyslexia, but they're clearly displaying symptoms of dyslexia, well, then put them in the intervention. Yeah. And I, I think that people should be evaluated periodically to see if they still need services. And that's true no matter how you select kids for programs. We shouldn't just select a kid for a program and they're in it until they graduate. We should be evaluating people periodically. That's true whether you use a test or a polygenic score to make predictions. Yeah. Okay, so let's end on that note. Lots of information to process today. It is. Yeah. It is. So, guys, the book is again in the know, debunking 35 myths about human intelligence. Where can people find you on the internet? 
Um, they can find me at russellwarren.com. That's R-U-S-S-E-L-L-W-A-R-N-E.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at Russ Warren. And I also have a professional Facebook page, um, facebook.com forward slash Russ Warren PhD. Um, those are the best places online to follow me. Okay, great. So I will include that in the description box of the great. interview. And Dr. Warren, again, as I said at the beginning, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. And this was a very interesting talk. So thank you for taking great. the time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Ricardo. Bye. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel almost three years ago, and I would really like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page or PayPal, uh, because I need your support, and any amount starting from $1 would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perarga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetriou, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassiu, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormer, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Thiago Nunes, Bernard Hugney, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Felicia Stevens, Fergal Cusson, Yevan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Staten T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, and Tom Roth. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis France, and Niruban Balachandran. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.